All right, if you'll take your bulletin, uh, there are message notes inside of it for you, and uh, turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're beginning a brand new series, it's just kind of a three-part series, entitled True Love Was Born in a Stable. Um, True Love Was Born in a Stable. If you're here with us as a guest for the first time, again, we welcome you, and there's also a connection card attached to your bulletin, if you'll Take a moment and fill that out with as much information as you feel comfortable giving us, and you can drop that in one of the baskets at the exit door, and there is a gift for you um, as you leave this morning. So we're just so excited we're, you're here this morning as we talk about Christmas, right? So um, Christmas time is a time of the year in which we express love, and one of the ways that we do that is by giving gifts, or maybe it may, it may come through acts of service, right? You may do something for someone during the Christmas holiday. Uh, as an expression of God's love towards someone. And uh, so when we think about purchasing gifts for people, uh, oftentimes uh, we approach it with, uh, with a kind of multifaceted. For some of you, you may be so in tune with the person that you're buying the gift for, you understand what their greatest need is at that moment. And so it might be that, you know, okay, here's their need. I'm going to buy a gift that's going to meet that need. Uh, for some of you, perhaps you don't know what the need is, but you just want to get them a gift anyways, and so you purchase something that you think would be helpful or beneficial to, you know, could really be for anyone who is male or female or whatever, or uh, some of you are just clueless. You have no idea what to get any that person, and so you just get whatever, and some of you have been the recipients of those kinds of gifts at Christmas, right? So you get it from an aunt or uncle or maybe a, a relative, and you open it up, and it's like, what is this? Um, <laughs> And you, you don't want to be rude, so you smile like, eh, thank you. I'm not sure what this is, but thank you for, very much for what it is. So um, when, we, when we talk about Christmas, we talk about gifts, we talk about expressions of love and gratitude and service. Well, when we think about the very first Christmas, this is what God really had in mind. God had in mind bringing to us a gift uh, of love that would meet the greatest need that humanity had at that moment in time. And our greatest need was the fact that we were sinners and that we had committed sin and we were separated from God and we lived in this rebellious state of existence. And God knew that humanity could not right their wrong, could not change their ways. So he would send Jesus into the world, the promised Messiah into the world in order to make that different, right? So this is the love gift that happens on that Christmas morning uh, when Mary gives birth to Jesus. So God is really bringing down a gift from heaven to earth in order to meet the greatest need of humanity. And whenever God wants to bring a gift from heaven to earth, he always does so by using someone. In this case, he's going to use Mary. He's going to use her body to birth the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And it is true in our lives. Whenever God wants to gift something to someone, he's going to use a human being to do that. For example, it might be that you're around somebody who needs a physical healing, and God may burden your heart and says, you know what, I want you to lay hands on this person. I'm going to bring a gift from heaven to earth and bring healing in this person's life, and I'm going to channel it through you. And so you're obedient to God, you lay hands on them, you pray, and they're healed. Or it might be that, you know, um, somebody has a physical need, and God burdens your heart and says, you know what, I want to meet this physical need. I'm going to do that through you. I'm going to bring a gift from heaven to earth. I'm going to do that through you in order to meet that person's need, whatever it might be. And this is the way God has always operated, and this is the way he continues to operate even yet today. And Mary is one of the most significant 
important women in all of history. I mean, when Jesus was born on that Christmas day, uh, it altered the course of all of the humanity and the world at large. And really, uh, Mary's, God using her, that story actually began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. You remember what God said to Adam and Eve? In Genesis 3.15, it was the first prophecy in the Bible about the coming Messiah, the one who would come to right all the wrongs that had taken place because Adam and Eve stepped out in rebellion against God and sent the whole world into chaos, right? So God was going to right the wrong, and he promised that one day a Messiah would come. Here's what he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your, he's he's speaking to Satan, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so God's answer to humanity's rebellion, sin, and separation is that God would bring forth a son born of a woman, in this case, Mary, and that son would battle, there would be a battle between himself and the dragon serpent Satan, and he, the Savior, would wound, be wounded by Satan, but he would then defeat Satan and crush his head. So in other words, um, as Jesus is, you know, born into the world and he's, he's moving along in life for three years as the Messiah, as Savior, certainly Satan unleashed all kinds of weaponry against him in order to get him to fall and disqualify himself to be Savior. I mean, people he loved and knew for a lifetime wanted to throw him off a cliff because they thought he was insane and crazy, that he needed some kind of divine intervention. Um, and so, they, you know, it wasn't an easy road for Jesus and so Satan was coming at him from all different sides. He was bruising his, his heel and striking his heel. But when Satan offered Jesus on the cross, not knowing, not understanding the ramifications of that, Jesus literally crushed Satan because now he has defeated sin and death, the two great enemies against humanity. And he literally crushed Satan so that Satan no longer has any victory over humanity. Our victory is found in Jesus Christ and him alone. So this is the importance, the significance of his coming into the world. And it is through Mary, this son was born, the one who would crush Satan, the one who would forgive sin and would deliver his people. So let's pick up the story in Luke chapter one, beginning verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. You might want to underline that. It's an important phrase. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. So there's that phrase again. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am, this, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. 
and then the angel left her. Please underline verse 38. Just capture the weight of what Mary is saying back to this messenger of God, the angel Gabriel. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And so this begins with in the sixth month. Again, so in the sixth month, Elizabeth uh, is pregnant and she is carrying uh, John the Baptist, who would be the cousin of Jesus. And you'll notice that it says the angel Gabriel is the one who showed up to deliver this message to Mary. Now, there are only two angels that are named in the Bible, Gabriel and Michael. They are two very powerful angels. And angels, by and large, are ministers and messengers of God. And so if Gabriel shows up, it's going to be a good day uh, because God's obviously delivering you a message, something very special, something that is very unique. But it's kind of an oxymoron because this angel, you would think that an angel with the caliber of Gabriel would not come to a city like Nazareth. Uh, because Nazareth um, is, was really just like a hole in the wall. It was just a, ve- a very, very small city, a very rural city. Um, it, it just wasn't where you would think uh, that an angel would show up to speak to a woman named Mary. Now today, uh, Nazareth houses about 100,000 people, uh, 60% of which are Muslim, uh, 30% which are Jewish, and 10% are Christian. But in Jesus' day, this town would have been comprised of 50 to 100 people max. It was a very, very small town, a very poor town. In fact, um, it, was, it was the kind of town that would be like on the route to somewhere. Like there were two major cities uh, that the town sat between. And so if you were traveling from one city to the other, you might stop by Nazareth, you know, to get some gas, to stop at 7-Eleven, get some gas, grab some Twinkies, a corn dog, and Diet Coke, right? Right, so that's not food, okay? It's just not food. But, um, and so it's just, it's, it's, the, it's the place that's on the way to the actual place. This is really what Nazareth was. And so that's why Nathaniel said uh, at one time, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because it was just not looked upon as a valuable city. It was a wreck. It was a hole in the wall. And for all intents and purposes, it is the place that God should not have showed up, right? This is not the place you would have thought God would have shown up in order to bring about Jesus uh, into the world. But it is the city in which Joseph and Mary come from. It is going to be the city in which Jesus is going to be raised. Uh, But again, it just reminds us of God's incredible grace and graciousness. Because, you know, just as, as Gabriel came to Joseph and Mary, please don't understand, these are not perfect people. They're people like us. They are broken individuals and they're living in a small town, they're trying to make their, their, you know, a, a living, and Joseph is, you know, as a carpenter, which means that, you know, he probably, you know, he went to school, uh, a rabbinical school, but he wasn't smart enough to make it, so you have to go back and do the trades, you weren't, you weren't asked to be a follower of a rabbi, and so you'd have to go back and you know, work in the family trade. So because it was a very small town, I, I'm sure that the, the synagogue there was, was very small. But, you know, um, this is the way God operates, though. We, if it would have been us, we would have thought, well, you know, God's going to bring Jesus into this metropolitan where he can just, like, have maximum influence. Like, if God's going to bring Jesus into the world, uh, why didn't he do it in Jerusalem? Or why didn't he do it in Rome? Or, or someplace like that where he could have maximum impact and influence 
in these big, huge metropolitan areas. Instead, God selects a little no-name town, an obscure village in Galilee, and nothing good was considered coming out of Galilee because it was a very poor rural area, uh, that part of Israel. And even then, he's born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is kind of like the same kind of place. It's just like a, eh, it's, it's there. It's just not really, you know, extraordinary. Um, so if, if God were to bring Jesus in our world in our day and time, we'd say, well, you know, the place would be like, you know, um, let's, let's do it in, you know, New York or L.A. or Washington, D.C. Let's do a major city where major influence could happen. And God would say, no, I'm going to do it in Groveport, right? So, you know, Groveport, we're, we're about 5,500 people. So, uh, so it would just be like this small, obscure place. And some of you are like, well, you know, I, you know I'd like to be used of God, and I, I'd like to be like Mary. And, and, well, the fact of the matter is God wants to use all of us. So God had a divine plan and purpose for Mary's life. Um, he flips her script. This isn't what she scripted for her life. I'm sure she, it says she's betrothed to uh, Joseph, which means she's engaged to be married, probably about a year out from that marriage, that wedding. So she's probably making plans for weddings. She's thinking about we're going to have, you know, four or five kids, and Joseph's going to be the carpenter in town, and we're just going to, you know, have our little white house with the picket fence and, and all of those things. She had it all laid out, all planned out for herself, but then all of a sudden God comes in and he turns everything upside down in her world and then the world and the life of Joseph. And that's sometimes what God does. Sometimes God flips everything in our lives in order to accomplish his purpose. And so it says that this angel, Gabriel, comes to Nazareth, this little town in Galilee, and that Mary is a virgin, is pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. And so that word virgin, some of your translations may say betrothed. and so there are many people who do not believe in Christianity. Uh, th- one of the things they would say is, well, this is an impossibility, right? How, how can a virgin have a child? How is that possible? And so there are liberal scholars that try to get around this, and they say, well, uh, this verse in Isaiah 7, 14 that also talks about this, this word virgin literally means just a handmaiden uh, or a young woman. But uh, you'd have a hard time uh, really supporting that, if you went outside of Luke 1 and, and Isaiah 7, if you went to Matthew 1, Matthew twice says that um, this baby is going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, that this is not going to come as a natural relationship. Now, this is what kind of trips us up is because their culture in that day and time is so much different than our culture in our day and time. For example. Uh, to understand the culture there, Mary is probably anywhere from 12 to 14 years old. But that was standard. Uh, usually you were engaged to be married by that age. That was nothing un- unusual. Uh, but in her culture, she didn't have things like cell phones, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or all of those kinds of things that, um, that you know, teenagers have uh, readily available to them in our culture. And one of the problems about our culture is that oftentimes uh, young women and young men use such um, social media in order to s- snap pictures of themselves without clothing and send it to one another. 
And so it, it, we also know that in our culture that most young men and women by the age of 14, 15, 16 at least are very sexually active. And so in our culture mindset, it would be like, this is so weird. Like, why would Mary be a virgin by that age? And, and if you, and some of you who are like me, you're older, you might be out of touch what goes on in schools now. But I can assure you this happens even among Christian kids where young ladies will proposition themselves to young boys and say, oh, so you've never slept with anybody? Just call me when you're ready. I'll take care of that for you. I know some young men this has happened to on more than one occasion. And pictures that are floating back and forth of themselves without any clothing on. And so this is normal for our culture. But extreme, it would have been extremely non-existent in her culture. She has grown up in a very conservative Jewish culture. And so the word young maiden or young woman is synonymous with being a virgin in that culture. And she is, she is betrothed, which means that um, this is a legal binding contract, right? So if you were to break this betrothal period, you literally had to file for divorce. That's how binding it was. And so Mary is in this position. And so she doesn't experience like Joseph coming up, uh, you know, showing up at her house on his donkey at 8 o'clock at night and saying, hey, Mary, how about getting on the donkey? We're going to go out to a nice secluded place and look at the stars and, and you know, and then brings her back home at 11 o'clock. That would never happen. She would have had multiple chaperones around her at all times because she was betrothed to, to Joseph. And, but we, you know, that happens in our culture, right? You know, you start dating and you, you pick somebody up late and you go out to, you know, somewhere to look at the stars and, and one thing leads to another. And that's why, by and large, our, our culture is not sexually pure. Uh, let's, just, let's just face facts. That's just, just the way it is in our culture. And so, um, so here's this woman. She's 12 to 14 years old, betrothed to Jerry, Jerry Joseph. You know, she, she's a virgin. Sorry, Jerry. Uh, so culturally speaking, when, this, when the angel says to her that she is going to conceive something from the Holy Spirit, this is huge, right? This is absolutely huge. And you can understand why Mary would ask the question, well, how can this be? I, I, I've never been with someone. And so this is going to be an act of God, right? How, how do you do that? And so not only is she going to conceive this child, but notice that Gabriel says this is not just any ordinary child. This is going to be Messiah, the one who's going to reign and rule from the throne of David forever. Now, how would you like to have that message dropped into your lap? You're about to raise the Messiah, the Son of God, God himself. Like when Jesus is growing up, like, do you ever give him a timeout? I mean, it's like, how does that work? I mean, is he perfect? Does he never make a mistake? And how does that operate with his siblings? Like, eh, yeah, you're Jesus, your favorite, because he's all the one that never does anything wrong, right? Or... or <laughs> I don't know how, how that all works out for Mary, but certainly it is, it is a lot of information to take in all at once. And so I think that when she's hit with this, notice it says that she was, like she was troubled. And I mean, she's trying to, I mean, take all this information in about what is about to happen to her. And so, but God says, I've highly favored you and I'm, I'm assigning you this role to you. Isn't it amazing that whenever God wants to do some incredible things in history, especially surrounding the new covenant, 
He uses women. You know, his women are the first ones that showed up the resurrection. And so now here she is being, God is using the most important thing that history has ever done. He chooses to do so through obviously a woman since men can't give birth, right? It wouldn't even make sense for us. But I just don't want you to under, misappropriate the importance of women because, ladies, you play a massive, massive role in the plan of God, even yet today. Do not ever sell yourself short. God wants to use you in incredible ways because, I'm, quite frankly, um, I mean, I think that, that women are stronger than men in many ways. Right? <laughs> Duh. <laughs> so, <laughs> You know, just think about the pain of childbirth. Ain't no man wants to go through that. In fact, we're, we're secretly, we're, I remember going through Lamaze when our first child was born, when Stacy was born, and I'm thinking, Lord, I'm so glad I'm a man right now. Um, I, re- I really wouldn't want to have to go through this. And, you know, women are much, much stronger. I mean, like, okay, so when they get sick and they've got children at home, they've got one on their hip, and they've already fixed breakfast, doing laundry and getting kids off to school, even though they're sick because they can't, they can't have downtime, but we men... <laughs> We get a little sniffle, and we're like, oh, honey, I don't think I can get out of bed this morning. Can you make me some soup or something? All right, guys, don't throw stones at me. You know we are wimps when it comes to illnesses. And so, you know, women, God's using the wisdom and the strength and the heart of a woman whose name is Mary. And she is a beautiful, beautiful example of incredible faith. Incredible faith. So her initial reaction, she's greatly troubled, means that she's petrified, she's scared to death, but she's not going to let her fears keep her from moving forward in faith. So here's some possible um, fears that she may have had was the fear of criticism, right? So what's everybody going to think? When she breaks the news that she's pregnant and Joseph gets word, it's like, okay, uh, this isn't mine. And then she's going to come up with, well, you know, this is God's child. Right, 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 because that would really fly well in a little rural town in Nazareth where God has never shown up before in such a manner, right? So there's that fear. There's the fear of the supernatural. You know, what's going to happen to me? How's this going to impact my life? How's it going to affect me? And how, you know, how am I going to raise this child? And sometimes people, even yet today, Christians are fearful of the supernatural. They're fearful of a movement of God in a supernatural way. And so sometimes we'll, you know, like we'll put the brakes on that keeps God from doing something supernatural in your life. There's the fear of inadequacy. You know, how am I going to handle this? I'm not up to this, right? You're asking me to raise the Son of God, the Messiah. I mean, one of the things that, you know, helps my heart is knowing that at least at age 12, that Joseph and Mary, who were in charge, they had one job, they're in charge of the Son of God, left him behind and didn't know for three days. I, I, I find solace in that, uh, since we've left our children behind before. Um, there's the fear of change. You know, how, how's this going to change my life? How's this going to interrupt my plans? And Mary, she, she is, she's good, but I want you to understand this. She's not perfect. Right? There's been denominations who tried to raise her to the level of sainthood and perfection and to say that, you know, um, all hail Mary full of grace. No, when it says she's found the favor of God, literally, it means that she has found the grace of God. That's what the favor of God means. It's the grace of God. The grace of God has come upon her. What is grace? It is unmerited favor. It is unmerited love, undeserved favor. It is a word that describes how we are saved and how we are um, 
embraced by God. And so she is chosen by God on the basis of God's divine grace. On the basis of not her perfection, but God's divine grace. That's why he would choose her. And this is very important since um, some people, again, think Mary is perfect and without sin, and therefore they elevate her to a position of being, watch this, the source of grace to, to other people. She's not the source of grace. She's the recipient of God's grace. God has never elevated her to the, be the source of grace. So in the Catholic version, it's, it's this way. It's like you pray to Mary because Mary will take your prayers to the feet of Jesus, and there's no way that Jesus is going to turn down his mother. And therefore, if you want your prayers to be effective, you need to pray to Mary. Nowhere do we find that in the Bible. Nowhere do we find that she has been elevated to a place of absolute perfection. But yet, when you look at you know, ancient artwork concerning Mary, usually she is depicted in her 30s wearing a crown of gold, nicely embroidered clothing, sitting on a golden throne, holding a baby uh, that's, you know, its hair's perfect and wearing a white gown and has a gold crown on its head with a circled halo around it. That is not the depiction of Christmas. The Christmas story is about here is a little ragged town, Nazareth, here are two very poor individuals, Joseph and Mary, who are about to be married, and then all of a sudden, God invades their lives and turns their world upside down. This is the Mary to whom God has issued this call through his, his messenger, Gabriel. So here's our bottom line for today, is that God desires to partner with those who are willing to trust him through everything. They are willing to trust him with everything. Mary, again, is a woman of faith, and the, in the most amazing moment of her humble life, she is willing to let go of her reputation, she's willing to let go of her marriage, she's willing to let go of her security, she is willing to let go of her comfort in order to serve God. She says, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said. Mary should not be the object of our faith but she certainly is an example of faith. And so it really says to me, here's the kind of person that God uses. Because listen, God desires to partner with you in order to accomplish his will here on earth, to drop the seeds of blessing and the seeds of resources from heaven to you, through you, in order to bless somebody else's life. But it's not automatic. We have to cooperate with God for it to happen. What if Mary had said, Lord, no way. I'm not doing this. I'm out. I'm checking out. This is not for me. It's not going to happen. God could not have used her, right? She had to be a willing participant because God never goes against the human will. God gave us a free will. He will never charge against our will. She came as a recipient of this news, and she says, you know what, Lord? I don't know what all this is going to entail, but I'm going to tell you what, I'm scared to death, but I'm moving forward with you because I believe, I believe that I can trust you with everything, including my entire life and my future. So here are the three things that God looks for. God uses people who decide to pay the cost, who decide to pay the cost. Again, I had you underline the phrase that she was highly favored by God. What does that mean? Does that mean that she's going to live a life of just remarkable circumstances. There's never going to be any pain. There's never going to be any difficulty. There's never going to be any trials. There's never going to be any of that. Doesn't mean that at all. 
Remember we said the favor means the, the grace of God, the blessing of God, the grace of God. How does, how does that work out for her? Because Gabriel gives her this incredible message about this child who's about to be born. She's going to treasure these things in her heart, and she's going to need to, because she's going to go through some very, very difficult circumstances and trying experiences throughout the course of her lifetime. So what does it look like to live a life under the favor of God? It's easy to miss, but it, all, it, it entails unexpected hardship. I mean, so Gabriel says, Mary, you're being, you know, this is happening because of the Holy Spirit. God's with her initially. She experiences, though, tremendous amounts of guilt and shame, especially from those around her. Not, not that she's guilty about what happened to her, but just the way people are going to treat her. So when she receives this news, she goes 100 miles south to visit her, 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 aunt, her relative, Elizabeth, and she spends three months there. Well, after the three months, she comes back to Nazareth. Well, when she comes back, it's painfully obvious she's pregnant. And so Joseph doesn't know what's going on up to this point because God's not revealed it to him. He thinks that she's been with somebody else. The townspeople think that she's been with somebody else. And so here she comes back home to Nazareth, 50 to 100 people. You know how widely uh, and rapidly, you know, gossip begins to spread very quickly. Marl and I were in a town. We lived in a town about 350 people for a while. And I'm telling you, what, something happened that morning. It was all over town by that evening, right? So it's, it's spread everywhere. Oh, have you seen Mary? Have you seen Mary? Do you know what happened to Mary? What's going on with Mary? And so here she is uh, in this ancient world. A broken engagement required, uh, you know, a, a legal divorce. She thinks that, you know, once Joseph finds out, it's over with. Why, why would he marry me now? Why would he keep me? In fact, the fact that she's pregnant by somebody other than Joseph, legally she could be stoned, uh, according to the law. And so Joseph, the Bible says in Matthew, that he's contemplating about, let's just end this thing privately. I don't want her stoned. I don't want to publicly humiliate her any more than she is. I'll, I'll just break it off privately with her. And then all of a sudden, God invades and gives him the news uh, through a vision and, and, and uh, you know, uh, that, hey, this is, this is of me, and therefore, uh, Joseph, you know, they end up being together. And so here he is, uh, Mary, in this situation, and... Uh, to show you how difficult this was for her, in John chapter 8, verse 41, 30 years later, let's fast forward 30 years from this moment, they're still talking about her illegitimate son and the fact that she got pregnant by another man and Joseph just had pity at for her and married her because he felt sorry. Still talking about it. The rumors never died. And that rumor was transpiring in Jerusalem of all places. And so before God stepped in and, again, told Joseph to marry, uh, you know, he, he, he's planning to, to break off this relationship. And so Mary's heart, though, is growing, and it's growing in love and faith and humility. Here's my whole point, is that the seed God plants in you, you don't get to choose the soil in which he plants it. And her soil is going to be rough because this is one of huge humility and shame in a community that's very small and can become very ruthless about this information. And, and what explanation does she have? Like I said, what are you going to say? Well, okay, well, yeah, this is of God, right? You know, nobody's believing that story, right? Nobody's, nobody's going to believe that story, not for a minute. 
God's never visited Nazareth before. He's never, you know, done anything supernatural in that city before. Why all of a sudden now and with you? And so we have to grow and mature in love and faith and humility. And, and we do so by choosing to trust God, even when you are facing unexpected hardships in your life. And sometimes the delay to the promise is a part of that hardship, and it requires faith. There's a difference between believing God exists and trusting God, right? So faith means I entrust myself to God, and this is what Mary's doing. She's entrusting herself to the Lord, regardless of all the pushback that she's receiving from everybody else in town. She knows this is of God. She's following his leadership. She's willing to do that. She made that cho choice. She made that decision, even though everything is pushing back against her. And this goes on for probably for years. And so now towards the end of Mary's pregnancy, now all of a sudden she has to take this long trek to Bethlehem, right? Very un, un, I don't, I've never been pregnant, you know, right before you're delivering and you're taking this, you know, very long journey to Bethlehem, uh, probably walking partially on a donkey. And, and then you give birth to your, your baby in this dirty stable and place Jesus in this, you know, wrapping in cloths and putting him in a feeding trough, which is the manger. I mean, you would think that God, if he's bringing his son into the world, he'd have more ideal conditions than this. And so these are not real sanitary conditions for Joseph and Mary. And so, you know, Mary's got, she's got no midwife there. So Joseph's probably, he's got to step up. He's got to be the one who's going to help in this delivery process. I don't know how much help he gave, but if he's like some men, he probably passed out probably three or four times before he even got the kid out of there. She probably already had it out and, and delivered on her own. I'm just speculating here. I'm, I'm going off track. This is, that's the Greg version. Despite the difficulties, though, and the dynamics, is that God, God begins to show her something, right? And so now all of a sudden, angels are showing up and shepherds, and, and they're worshiping, and they're bowing before. And then later, as they take Jesus on the eighth day after his birth into the temple, and Simeon and Anna are acknowledging his glorious identity, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, like two years later, the Magi show up and they're, they're coming with gifts and worshiping him. But then all of a sudden, now a downturn happens. Now all of a sudden, the Magi go by Herod and say, you know, they, they, they bypass him. They, they found out where Jesus would be. And now Herod, the government, all of a sudden wants to kill Christ. And so now Joseph and Mary must flee from their homeland into a foreign land, into Egypt, and remain there for a period of time until, you know, hair dies out, and then they're able to return home. Think about how that would be. You are uprooted out of, you, you, you have no job, you just had a baby, uh, you know, and, and now you're in this foreign country, and so the wise men did bring some wise gifts because it helped to, you know, the gold, and it helped to um, provide for finances while they're in this foreign land, but still, you're in a foreign land, and Egypt was not always kind to the Jewish people. And so this becomes a very difficult road for, for Mary. And Joseph, uh, we know he's still alive by the age 12 of Jesus and that Jesus had four brothers and several sisters. But at some point, Joseph died. And now Mary's a widow. She's got all these children. And if that weren't bad enough, her oldest son, Jesus, goes off uh, on a uh, six-week hiatus and he's fasting and praying in the wilderness. He comes back home. He's been anointed by the Holy Spirit and he begins his ministry, and then he comes to Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue, and he, he speaks out of the book of Isaiah, and he, folds, he rolls up the scroll. He says, this has been fulfilled in me. How did the townspeople respond to that? Is this not the son of Joseph? 
And they were so infuriated with him, they took him out to a cliff and they wanted to throw him off. And so Mary has to watch as Jesus begins his ministry, and people don't like it. And his own siblings are against it. They think they need to do an intervention like he's lost his, you know, he's he's mentally insane. And the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of their day, they think he's a cult leader and they want to take him out. And so now everybody is against him. And long story short is when you come to the end of Jesus's ministry and after he dies on a cross and he's, you know, He's, he, he has healed thousands of people. He's spoken to thousands of people, and yet only 120 actually show up in the upper room for the prayer meeting afterwards. He's only got 120 followers. And Mary has to watch the crucifixion. What do you think is going through her mind? What do you think is grabbing her heart? Watching her son to be brutally whipped and tortured, spit upon, insulted, stripped naked, put on a cross for all humanity to see. Do you think that she was, I don't know, did she see him as the Lion of Judah, the consolation of Israel, the Messiah? Or did she flash back to that day that he was born? Or maybe some, you know, excerpts from throughout the course of his lifetime. I don't know what she was thinking, but I know her heart was broken. But yet she continued in faith and walking after God. Mary's life is a picture of the right heart response to the leadership of God. Gabriel told Mary that her son would be great and reign forever. While Jesus was on earth, he was despised and he was rejected. Mary raised Jesus to be a good boy, a good man, a man of God after God's own heart. And those virtues actually got him killed. But yet she still continued on. So the question is, what are you willing to give up? Mary was willing to pay the cost. She was willing to pay the price to do what it is God was asking her to do. I'm just trying to get you to see, this was, not, this was not some small price to be paid. This was years upon years of hardship and difficulties and circumstance. There was some great years. They're probably good years. But for a lot, there was so much heartache involved in this role that she was playing and fulfilling as God was bringing Jesus into the world. So what are you willing to give up? What is it that you, you, you are, it's a roadblock between you and God that keeps you from being used by him. Number two is this, God uses people who dare to trust his promises. No, Mary didn't have a lot to go on other than the promises that Gabriel gave to her about Jesus in verses 34 through 37. And, and what he said, you know, this was, this was an act of God, that the Holy Spirit was coming upon her. She was overshadowed by the Most High, and um, she's giving this birth to this son who's going to be called the Son of God. And, you know, then Elizabeth used as an example, and here's the key first, for nothing is impossible for God. You know, she's questioning all this, and, but nothing's impossible. Why? Because Mary was a was willing to move forward in spite of her fears. Courage is really faith in action. And that's what you see in her life. A woman whose faith was in action and nothing was going to stop her. And that faith was rooted in God's promise. This is how it's going to happen. This is who's coming. This is who you're giving birth to. 
and he is going to be ruling and reigning from the throne of David forever and ever. Now, Mary never got to see the total fulfillment of the promise that was given, but she saw enough of it. So let me just challenge you to read the Bible differently for yourself. Read it through a different lens. Most of us, who, most of you in, in, that grew up in church, you read the Bible and we, we, we look for principles. We look at people like Abraham and David and Samson and, and people like that of great faith and we think, oh, I, I want to be like that. You know, I want to be like David. I, I, I want to be able to just, you know, like, you know man, I'm going to take on Goliath. I'm going to war against him. And man, I'm, you know, and so now Goliath for you, Satan. Man, I'm going to take on Satan and, and I'm just going to march out on the field. And I'm going to take my little sling and stones and I'm going to knock him out and take his head off. And I'm just going to slay the dragon, right? So we get all pumped up and uh, like we're going to be real courageous. And or sometimes it's maybe it's like we want to be like Samson. We just want to be strong in the area of life and and just be able to overcome things, or, or maybe like Abraham, who was just willing to lay it all on the line. He's willing to take his son and lay him on the altar and offer him up to God with, you know, just like, man, I'm just like a man of faith. I just want to be that kind of person. Or maybe for you, it's Noah, who's out there on the desert. He is building an ark. For 120 years, he's building this ark, and yet he just, he was tenacious, right? He's persevered and persevered. And I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like Noah. And so we start looking for things, heroes in the Bible, that we want to be like, and, and we try to extract principles that's going to help them be us be like him, or that person, or male or female. Some great examples of both. I, I just want to challenge you to look at the Bible from a different lens. Look at the Bible. When you're reading the Bible, it's not a book about heroes. It's a book about one hero, and that one hero is Jesus. He's the only hero. He is the one who is the hero in every single book of the Bible. The entire Bible is written about this hero, Jesus. All of these people that God used, like Abraham, David, Samson, Noah, they were all broken, messed up people, right? You know, David was a, you know, he was a murderer and an adulterer. Noah was a drunk, and Abraham lied a lot. And so you know, they were broken people just like us. And so we try to step out on the field and say, okay, Let's just take the example of David and Goliath. We say, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to be David. I'm going to get out on the field. I'm going to take on the enemy. David was not the hero of that story. God was. David didn't defeat Goliath. God did. David would have never defeated Goliath had it not been God doing it, right? So when you read that story, you're not David. Jesus is. Jesus is the one who came and slayed our enemy, Satan. He's the one who defeated him once and for all and overcame sin and death. He is the victorious one. Now, you and I are to live in the realm of his victory. You and I in the story, you know who we are? We, the Israelite army sitting up on the side of the mountain who are too scared to get down in the valley to take on Goliath. And we've been sitting up there for a long time waiting for somebody to go have the audacity to go in there and take him on. And so what happened after David slew Goliath? All of a sudden now, the Israel army is infused with courage and faith, and now they go after the Philistine armies and begin routing the armies. Why? Because they are resting in the victory of David as given on the battlefield against Goliath. You and I, every single day of our lives, are to rest in the victory of Jesus as we are taking on our enemy on a day-in and day-out basis, whether it's coming through temptation or things that are happening against us that he is behind. Listen, you rest in the victory of Jesus. You're not the victorious one. He is. This is why we get defeated over and over again because we're resting in the wrong thing. 
Or let's take Noah, for example. I mean, you read Noah, and so you, you read the chapters, and so the Bible says everybody was doing so much evil in their own hearts. You know, the, mankind's heart was so evil, that's all they did. Now, what, the word evil here means like, that would be like making ISIS look like school children, right? And so just all of this is going, God says, you know what, had enough, had enough, I'm going to destroy, I'm going to destroy everybody in the world except for Noah's family, and he's going to build this ark, and I'm going to save him and some animals, and we're going to start all over again. We're going to, we're going to hit reset. And we read that story, and, and we think, well, you know, it's, okay, it's about, um, yeah, it's about the wood. You know, the ark's made of this certain wood, and that's like the cross, and, and there's one door, and Jesus enters. You know, you can only enter into heaven through one door, and that's through Christ. And so we, we pull out all of these analogies, and that's fine and wonderful, but we miss the big picture. And here's the big picture of the story is what did God do? As a result of saving Noah and his family, he set a rainbow in the air, and he said, listen, this is a, this is a sign of my covenant that I will never again destroy the world by unleashing my wrath upon it by way of what? Of a flood. Now, a rainbow is a bow. It represents a bow is what? A bow is an instrument that was used against your enemy. When you look at the rainbow, when you drive uh, during the day and you see which way is the bow pointing? It's pointing to the heavens. And what God is saying through that story is, listen, there's going to come the day that I'm going to unleash my wrath, but I've set the bow towards myself. I'm going to unleash my wrath upon myself, and that's exactly what he did through Jesus, right? Jesus came, hung on the cross for your sins and mine, and God poured out his wrath upon Jesus. He drank the cup of God's wrath. God poured his wrath upon himself. So we rest in what? Jesus's victory on the cross. The only way you and I are saved is because Jesus drank the wrath of God and he died for our sins so that through him we might have eternal life. Look at the Bible through a new set of eyes. Look at it through the victory of Jesus and allow him to infuse himself into you. Again, He's the vine, we are the branches. We stay abiding in him. Jesus said, if you abide in me, you can do anything apart from me. You can do nothing. So you are resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ because in that finished work, Ephesians 1 says that every spiritual gift and blessing is found in Christ. So you rest in him. You abide in him. You make him center. Paul said it this way, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives within me. And I mean, this is the guy who loved me and, and gave his life for me and the one I'm resting in. I heard this example the other night. It's just like, you know, I like to drink tea sometimes. And so when you take water in a tea bag, they're two separate elements. You put the tea bag in the water, you're infusing the tea into the water, Right. The water doesn't become the tea. The tea doesn't become water, but they infuse themselves together. This is what, what the picture of abiding in Christ is. I'm, I'm infused in him. I'm allowing Jesus to permeate me and to permeate my life and my mind and my emotions and, and my, the lens through which I look at life and I look at people so that when you are infused in him, you begin to what? Change the atmosphere in which you find yourself and you can bring peace into the midst of chaos. You can bring love into the midst of hatred. You can bring faith into the midst of fear. That's what Mary was doing. And that's what we need to do. We have to trust in the God's promises because there are some times in life that's all you've got left. Here's the third one, and uh, we'll wrap this up. God uses people who desire to do his will. Again, Mary had a script for her life, 
God rewrote that script because Mary came with a heart of surrender. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. A heart of surrender. She was willing to let go of her comfort, her security, her identity, her reputation, her marriage, and she doesn't even blink. And oh, guess what her son emulates when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane? The same heartfelt surrender that she showed. Ladies, let me let you clue you in on your importance. The hand that rocks the cradle ultimately rules the world. Don't you ever think for a minute that Mary did not have incredible influence upon Jesus in his humanity? And he lived that out. So what do you desire the most? What are you a servant to? I'm just challenging all of us that we would be like Mary. Just as Mary was incapable of having life, we are incapable of having life on our own. Just as she's incapable of you know, pulling off this miracle, we're incapable of pulling off miracles. It was an act of God's grace, an act of his grace. But she responded in faith, and so we respond in faith by trusting in Jesus, our gift of grace. And she responded by saying, my life belongs to God. Let me be his servant. And we also can respond in the exact same way. So what is your next step in being used by God? What is your next step? Have you put the brakes on because, you know, God, I'm just not willing to pay that price. Uh, no, no I, I want to be in control. I don't want to let you be in control. Or maybe it's like, God, I, can't, I just can't trust your promises. I, tr- I tried to trust you in this area of my life. Things got really bad. And, I, you know, I bailed out halfway through because I just, I just couldn't hang on in faith. I couldn't trust you any longer. And so, God, I don't, I don't want to go through that again. Or maybe it's for you, Lord, quite frankly, I really want my will to be done, not your will to be done. And it might be that's what you struggle with. The reason God chose Mary was an act of his grace, but he saw something in her. He saw an incredible, tenacious faith that was not going to give up. So let's bow our heads together. Father, we we just pause this morning and say uh, thank you for the example that you have put in your word, this incredible woman of God whose faith um, I think all of us would desire to emulate, to have such a trust, um, such a tenacious faith that lasted for many, many years in spite of all that was thrown her way. She just kept trusting. She just kept laying her life down. She just kept moving forward. And God, whatever was thrown into her pathway, she just partnered with you because she trusted you in everything. Lord, may that be characteristic of our lives. May that be said of us when we reach the end of our lives, that, Lord, we, we desired your will above all else. And we were just willing to trust you regardless of what the circumstances around us looked like and felt like, what we were experiencing. 
Because, God, we've anchored in. We've locked into your promises. Jesus' victory is our victory. Father, I pray that whatever price that we must pay in order to accomplish your will, your plan, your purpose for our individual lives, that, Lord, we wouldn't even think twice about paying that cost, about paying that price, about moving forward with you. I pray for somebody here this morning, Father, that needs to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior of their life. For whatever reason, they're just not like, I don't, I don't want to make that decision because it's the, price, the cost is too high. I, I don't want to be considered, you know, a Jesus follower, a Jesus freak. Whatever the excuses are filtering into their minds and hearts, Lord, I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll just ease your way in. Just allow them to experience just the liquid love of the Father right now, just the love of Jesus on their lives. May that love be what draws them to repentance, turning away from a life of sin and turning to Jesus to be Savior and Lord of their life. May they entrust their lives to him this morning. I pray for us as a church, God. I don't know what our future looks like. I don't know what it is you're going to be calling us to do, what steps and doorways of faith you're going to ask us to enter into. But Lord, I pray that we will be like Mary and we will without hesitation say, we are your servant. Let it be done unto us as you will, as you will. May we not hesitate doing all that you've asked, you may be asking or you are asking now. So, Father, uh, may your will be done here on earth in this service as it is in heaven.